0: Turn with me, if you would please, in your Bibles to uh, James chapter 1, and we'll read together verses 19 through 27. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the Word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his his religion is worthless. A Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Amen. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. You've no doubt heard that slogan. You've, you've probably seen it on a bumper sticker. You may even have, it, have seen it on a, on a billboard or maybe on someone's cell phone cover. You've probably said it. Heck, I've probably even said it myself from time to time. It sounds great. It's a, it's a wonderfully attractive way to describe Christianity. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. But strictly speaking, in fact, even speaking in generalities, it's not true. Now, now hold on. Hold on. Let me explain before you get, oh my gosh, Ian's going to H E double hockey sticks because he doesn't believe that a relationship with Jesus is necessary for salvation. He can't really be a saved person. Let's all pray for him that God will melt his heart and and draw him close. Let's pray a hedge of protection around Ian and his family, whatever that might mean. I'm I'm never really sure about that one, A, a hedge of protection. Shrubbery. Shrubbery has never really offered the best form of protection. It's pretty good for marking out boundaries, but as a protection, if you're going to pray anything, for protection for me and my family. Let's do razor wire and electric fencing. That's always the way to go. I don't want to hedge. Anyway, I never said that Christianity has got nothing to do with a relationship with Jesus. What I said was that to claim that it's either a relationship or a religion is one of these forced-choice false dichotomies. Do you like apples or, or bananas? Well, I, I like both. Well, no, you can't like both. You can only like one. Well, no, I, actually, I do like both, apples and bananas. Do you like sweet or salty? Well, I like both. But, but it's a forced choice. You've got to choose one or the other. Well, that, well, that's just rubbish, because I like both. I like sweet and salty. I mean, have you ever tried candied bacon Bacon is, is a bit one of the saltiest things you can eat. And short of eating salt, it is the saltiest thing you can eat. But what you do is you you, 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 you take bacon, and then you cover it in brown sugar, and you fry it to a, to a crispy deliciousness. And then I'll ask you if you like sweet or salty, and then you'll see that this whole forced choice thing is a load of rubbish. Is Christianity a relationship or a religion. Well, that is just not a helpful way to think, to hold that as an absolute, that it is a relationship. It's not a religion. says that anyone who practices any form of religious Christianity can't really be saved, or at the very least, it puts their salvation in question, which actually would be every single one of us. You see, Christianity is is both It's not, and it certainly should not be perceived as an either-or proposition. Christianity certainly begins as a relationship. There's no question about it. We're told in various parts of the Bible that we're loved by God, and our response is to be obedience, trust, and yes, love. Love speaks of an intimate knowledge of someone else it is the relational word. Now, we've taken the word love, haven't we, and we've we've kind of corrupted it somewhat. I love ice cream. I really love chocolate. I loved that movie. These are not really appropriate uses of the word love. I mean, can you really have a relationship with ice cream and chocolate? Well, I guess some might want to argue that you can, but not really. You maybe like them very, very much. You maybe appreciate them. You maybe derive derive some significant pleasure from them, but you don't really love them. Love is the relational word. It can really only be true between two or more sentient beings for you can only truly love another who is able to love you back. Now, whether they do or not is entirely up to them. So, Christianity begins with the love that God has for the world and for you, and hopes that you will receive that love and give that love back in return. So, it clearly begins with a with a relationship. And the relationship aspect remains throughout the whole of the Christian life. It's not just at the beginning. But then as soon as you enter into this relationship, you get baptized. You join the church. You go to church. You read your Bible. You pray. You maybe fast. You maybe give money. You go to Bible class. You go to small group. and You follow a certain lifestyle pattern. You believe certain things. You take communion, and so on, and so on, and so on. In what other relationship do you do things like that? You see, this isn't just a normal relationship. This is a relationship that you have with God. And one relates to God differently from the ways in which we relate to other people. We relate to God through religious practices. We all do some, if not all, of these religious, religious practices, and some do even more. You know the saying, if it looks like a duck, if it, if it quacks like a duck, if it smells like a duck, then it must be, yeah, it must be a religion. Christianity is a religion. And the problem is that so many in the evangelical branch of the church don't like the word religion because of all the negative connotations that have been put upon it—burdens, uh, uh, rules, requirements, duties, works, performance. Now, none of these are actually bad in and of themselves, but we've interpreted them as, as such because we do view them all as, as unreasonable burdens placed upon us by an outside force. So we see the whole thing, religion, as a burden. Many say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, how do you practice your spirituality? How do you relate to the divine? How do you codify what you believe if not through some type of religious practice? Christianity is a religion. So, if we can't authentically have the forced choice option without losing integrity, and we have to admit that, that Christianity is not only a relationship, but it's also a religion, then what are we to do with this word that conjures up so, such, a, such a negative image for so many people? Well, I want to suggest that rather than holding on to these negative connotations, we need to to rethink what this word really means. It's not really a negative word. It's actually a very, very beautiful word if we're willing to lay aside some of the baggage that we've loaded onto this word religion. I've always loved etymology. I think insects are absolutely fascinating. I'm just checking that you're still with me. Of course, entomology is the study of insects. We're talking about etymology. That's the study of root words. Now, most words mean more than the sum of their parts, and many words have evolved beyond their original meanings. I think about the the word cool. Cool can mean something that's not hot, but it's not too cold. At the same time, it can mean that something is, is good, and it's great, and it's fine, and it's very pleasing. Awesome. Awesome's another word. Uh, It used to mean that something inspired awe, but now it just simply means something that's pleasing to you, a different form of cool, maybe just a little bit stronger. We've already seen that with the word love. It's no longer used relationally, but simply to mean something uh, that, that you might like. And the word gay, it used to simply mean someone who was dressed in in bright colors and was a particularly jolly sort of a person. Now, it has a deeper meaning in our culture. So, any words that we look at for the root meaning, we we may have to peel back some layers to help us understand it more deeply. So, this word, religion, what's the root of that word? What's the etymology of this word, religion? Well, it comes from a Latin root, uh, the word ligio, which means to tie or, or, or to bind, where we get the word ligaments from things that bind other things together. Uh, ligio with the prefix re, R-E, which means back or, or again. So, re ligio means to be bound or to be tied back onto something like, imagine a, a horse has been tied to a hitching post. The, the rope has somehow come loose. You have to chase after your horse. Grab the rope and tie it back on again. Well, in the context of, of divine encounters and, and, and worship and the such like, it came to mean to be bound back to the gods. What are the things that you do to bind you in a relationship with the gods, whether it, whether it means ceremonial acts or, or covenants or, or, or whatever? These were religious activities in that in the performance of them, you were being bound back to the divine, from which or from whom you may have wandered. In many ways, you could say that a wedding, whether, whether a secular wedding or a wedding in church, is, is a religious act, because through a ceremony, two people are making a covenant with one another. They're binding themselves together. You see how this is a, a religious act, but it's also at the same time a relational act. It's candied bacon. That's what I'm talking about. So, when we think of the word religion, rather than thinking in terms of of unreasonable burdens and, and guilt, we need to think in terms of the word that's in our sermon title today, reconnect. I expect you wondered when I was going to eventually get to that. Well, there you go. We're here. Reconnect. In the practice of religion, we are reconnecting and we are reconnected with God. But it's not quite that simple, is it? Because we have to ask, what type of religion is it that truly reconnects us with God? How are we to practice this reconnecting religion? Well, James, in the passage we read today, gives us more than a clue In fact, he lays it out pretty clearly for us. He writes this in verse 27, "'Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world.'" In writing this, he's echoing the words of many of the prophets, words of the psalmist, and, and, and even the words of Jesus himself. In fact, this is interesting. He's actually issuing one of the most ancient injunctions ever to be codified into law. The command to give justice to the orphaned girl and to the widow was written into one of the most ancient law codes in the world, the code of Hammurabi, who ruled in Babylon 400 years before Moses was even born. You remember the verse from Micah 6, what does the Lord require of you? To seek justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. In Jeremiah 7, we can find a clear injunction that included uh, in, in, in the things that are pleasing to God, the need to care for the stranger or the alien, the widow, and the orphan. In Matthew 25, we find Jesus speaking about the things that are acceptable to God, and they are caring or, or, or ministering to or serving those who are considered to be the least of these. Now, when we read this passage in James, it seems to suggest that we're only to care for widows and orphans, and, and that's something we do, particularly orphans. I mean, many people, many people in, in this church, uh, support children through compassion or or world vision. Amor more ministries with whom we we partner in, in Mexico, um, a more ministries began by seeing that many children, in uh, in in the the region around Tijuana, had been placed into orphanages by their parents not because their parents were dead, but the parents had placed them there so that the children could get the care that they desperately needed when the parents knew that they themselves were so deeply in poverty that they could not meet the needs of their own children. Amistad in Bolivia, where a group from the church has has gone just this weekend, provides a safe and secure environment for children at great risk. So, we can say as a church that we're, we're doing much to support orphans, particularly And we could say that we are reconnecting with God by living by the letter of this particular passage in Scripture. But in the light of some of these other passages I've mentioned, and a good good few others, we need to affirm that this isn't just about widows and orphans. There's a figure of speech called synecdoche, it's when you use a part of something to refer to the whole. For example, you may call an old man a, a gray beard or a, or a motorcycle you might refer to as, as wheels. You talk about a head count when you're actually counting people, not just heads. You find a number of examples of synecdoche in the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone. Bread's a stand-in, isn't it, for all essential foods. The psalmist says, I shall not trust in bows. That's referring to war and violence, not just bows. The word man is used in older and more conservative translations of the Bible to refer to both men and women, the whole of humanity, and the land flowing with milk and honey. That that, that too is, is synecdoche, since it refers to a land that's that's got an abundance of plant and animal and insect life. And here in in James, you find him using a synecdoche, where he uses the phrase widows and orphans. Now, we could say, we certainly could say if we wanted to, that he means just widows and orphans. Just care for widows and orphans. That's it. That's all you need to do. Don't worry about anybody else, widows and orphans. But if we're going to take seriously our own claim to uphold the authority of Scripture, we must see this subset of people, widows and orphans, in the light of a larger set. Who were widows and orphans in the ancient world? Well, as, as today, widows and orphans are women and children without a husband or father. As bad and as tragic as that is today, it bears no real relationship to the implications upon widows and orphans in the ancient world for without a father, without a man to represent them, without a man to represent them, they genuinely had no standing in society. A widow had no rights, but those that the community around her were willing to afford to her. When her husband died, she had no claim upon the property. The property belonged to him. Uh, The land could be claimed by those to whom the father, the husband, was indebted, or it could be inherited by the child when he, yes, only when he came of age, the daughters would receive nothing. That's why the Hammurabi Code lists specifically girl orphans and widows, because the plight of a girl orphan was so much worse than that of a boy. Widows and orphans essentially became landless. Without land, they were outcast. Uh, Their options were penury, servanthood, slavery, or worse. They were outside of society. They had no formal place. So, the prophets, Jesus, James, and the early church speaks up, not just for widows and orphans, but to all who are on the fringes of who would be considered societally acceptable. And that's that's who James is talking about, those whom we would normally shun, those whom we would normally Ordinarily reject those whom we would say, those of whom we would say they have no place among us, those of whom we may think there is no place for them in the kingdom of God or in a decent society. These are the very ones to whom we're called to minister. Jesus calls them the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger the naked, the sick, and the prisoner. Who are they to us today in our society, in our particular culture? There was a church I knew in North Carolina. They had been asked by an organization called Smart Start to host in their parking lot a bus that would come once a week to help local children in need and and at risk. The organization helped with with tutoring and and with a healthy meal for them. And they were looking for the church to to not only host the bus in the parking lot, but to give the children use of the bathrooms in the church building. I I mean, it seems like it would be a no-brainer. The neediest children in that community were and still are Latino, Native American, and predominantly black when asked if they would host, one of the elders was reported to have said, we don't want to have a bunch of racial expletive using our building. They failed. They failed. They wouldn't step out. They wouldn't practice true and pure religion. They chose the path of least resistance and opted not to minister to the least of these, and they chose not To reconnect with God through a ministry that was placed upon them. Christianity is a relationship, but it's also a religion. And if we want to practice pure religion that's acceptable to God the Father and and genuinely reconnect with Him, then we need to be more and more willing to step outside our comfort zone and minister to widows and to orphans and to everyone that they represent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.